0: luke 9 verses 23 through 36 and he said to all if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word
1: of the Lord. We're finishing a series today in which we've been looking at various strange encounters with Jesus. And the goal has been to let the strangeness of the encounter wake us up to the reality of who jesus really is now i saved this passage for the final week because in many ways this is like the strangest encounter of all it's called the transfiguration because jesus appearance is supernaturally transfigured but it's also one of those passages that when you read it you're kind of like huh <laughs> okay it, it this sounds great sounds like this mystical mountaintop experience with jesus but what does this mean? And even more, what difference does it make in this world right now? Friends, it means everything, and it makes all the difference, especially in this world right now. I had no way of knowing, none of us could, that just a few days before we were going to look at this passage, that one of the most powerful countries in the world would attack her neighbor and precipitate a global crisis. This world feels like a really dark place right now, but this world has always been a dark place. We just forget, and then we need to be reminded again and again and again. And and every time we are, it's like we're surprised, like, oh, hey, what about progress? What about all the advances of civilization? I thought the arc of history was bending towards justice, and then something like this happens, and it calls all of that into question. So, for instance, Frank Bruni is uh, an opinion writer for the New York Times. He wrote a piece just a few days ago in which he begins by saying that he's surrounded by all kinds of people that that are in sheer disbelief over what just happened. The reason is because we have this narrative in our culture that says, hey, we're modern enlightened people living in a modern enlightened world. We're supposed to be past things like this. Well, here's what Frank Bruni says. says, He says, this perspective wasn't just overly optimistic about history's arc, it was blind to the present. Yes, we are creatures of magnificent grace, but we are also acquisitive, aggressive, envious, and suspicious. History never moves on or gets past these forces. There should be no great shock about Russia's attack, only profound sadness and painstaking thought about what to do and what to come thought about what to do and what's to come. I can't think of two better questions to introduce this passage that we just read. What do we do about the darkness of this world? And what is to come? What does the future hold for this world? Those are huge questions. They're scary questions. Many of you may be wrestling with those questions right now, whether for the world or even just for your own life. But believe it or not, as disconnected as the transfiguration story feels from the darkness of this world, it actually is one of the best places to look to get answers to these questions. How? Well, let's find out by asking three questions about this passage. Where is the world headed? How does it get there? And how can we take part? where's the world headed, how does it get there, and how can we take part, okay? First, where's this world headed? The transfiguration story happens immediately after this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples about what it means to follow him. We'll talk more about that conversation later, but here's what I want us to notice right now. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man at the end of this section, and then he talks about how when He, the Son of Man, comes in His glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, the Son of Man is a divine figure that appears in the prophet Daniel chapter 7. Uh, the, The Son of Man is this divine figure who shares in the glory and authority of God Himself and who will one day come and bring perfect healing, justice, and renewal to this whole world. Now, if you're a regular attender here. What I'm about to say is going to be familiar to you, but if you're new, here's what this means. Jesus is talking about the, the, whole, the main storyline of the whole Bible. The main storyline of the whole Bible is all about this promise that one day God is going to send a king who's going to rescue us from evil and bring about a world made new. The main storyline of the Bible is all about rescue and renewal. Rescue and and renewal now the shorthand way of talking about that story is the kingdom of god so whenever jesus talks about the kingdom of god and he talked about it all the time bells would have been going off for everyone in his jewish audience because they knew when jesus talked about the kingdom of god they'd be saying that's the storyline rescue and renewal that's what jesus is talking about now are you with me so far Okay, the very next thing Jesus says to his disciples is, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see what? The kingdom of God. A lot of people have looked at this statement and gotten really confused because it sounds like Jesus is telling his disciples that some of them are going to actually um, still be alive when Jesus returns to earth in his glory and makes all things new, and because all of the disciples are dead and that hasn't happened yet, people think, well, either Jesus got his timeline mixed up or he was just wrong, right? Well, not quite. There are four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. They're called Gospels. Three out of the four Gospel accounts contain this story of the transfiguration. And in all three of those accounts, the the transfiguration comes immediately after this statement Jesus makes that some of his disciples are going to see the kingdom of God before they die. Are you starting to see what's going on here? The transfiguration is a preview of the kingdom of God. The transfiguration of Jesus is a preview, it's a foretaste of the destiny towards which this world is headed, but the truly amazing thing is that it all revolves around the glory of Jesus. And one of the most amazing things is the way this passage describes the glory of Jesus. If you are familiar with the Exodus story, it's all about how God rescued Israel from the evils of slavery and then brought them into a new land. Rescue and renewal. And in that story, the glory of God appears to Israel, but how? As a cloud. And the glory cloud of God comes down on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and when the glory cloud comes down on the mountain, the voice of God speaks to the people. Now, here we are on another mountain. The glory cloud is there. The voice of God is speaking, but this time, where's the glory coming from? It's coming from a person it's coming from Jesus. This is showing us that Jesus doesn't just reflect God's glory like a mirror. or He doesn't just point to God's glory like a prophet. Jesus is the very manifestation of God's glory here on earth. The transfiguration is showing us that all of history, the meaning of the whole world, the meaning of the whole cosmos revolves around Jesus And that the destiny towards which this whole world is headed is bound up and built upon and centered around Jesus himself. Now, here's what this means for us. Imagine the kind of world that we all long for. What does that world look like? You know, this world right now is a very dark place. What kind of world would you like to live in? We could make a list, right? We want to live in a world of peace, justice, goodness, beauty, truth, a world of welcome, a world of love. The transfiguration is showing us that the world we all long for, it's not just a world we're longing for, it's a God we're longing for. In other words, the kingdom of God is not just a place, it's a person. And it's Jesus and that the world we long for is really all centered around Jesus. And, and if Jesus isn't at the center of that world in his personal presence, then that world, as glorious as it would be, would, would be cold and empty and meaningless because it's the personal presence of Jesus that makes that world our heart's true home. A very feeble analogy would be something like this. I grew up in a little city in Southern California. My parents lived in the same house um, my whole life. And every time I would go back home, that was home because, um, because that was where my parents were. And it felt like home. It was a place I experienced a real sense of love and belonging. So even when my mom passed away in 2007, my dad was still there. So whenever Jenny and I would go back uh, to California, it still always felt like home. But then my dad died in 2014. And I remember, you know, we had the memorial service. It was a lovely day. There was a lot of friends and family there. But the next morning, I woke up, and um, we were getting ready to head back here to St. Louis. And I went out to get a cup of coffee. And I was driving the same familiar streets in the same familiar town that had always felt like home, except now it didn't anymore. It was one of the strangest feelings i've ever experienced the best i can describe it is it felt like i was untethered like i had been cut loose from something that had always anchored me and understand nothing had changed about the city what had changed what was different was the personal presence of my parents was no longer there it never was the place that made it feel like home it was the personal presence of my parents that made that place feel like my heart's true home friends The world we long for is not just a place, it's not just a state of affairs, it's a person. Jesus is the peace, justice, goodness, beauty, truth, welcome, and love that our hearts long for because Jesus is the kingdom of God. And the destiny towards which this world is headed is all bound up in the personal presence and glory of Jesus. And that leads to our next question we've just asked, where is this world headed? It's the glorious presence of Jesus. But secondly, how does it get there? Remember, the transfiguration happens right after this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Now, we didn't read the whole conversation, but this conversation is the very first place that Jesus tells his disciples that he, the Son of Man, is going to suffer be killed, and after three days, rise again. And his disciples just cannot process that information. To them, the idea of a suffering, dying Messiah is utterly incomprehensible. And so the transfiguration, in many ways, is Jesus' answer to their incomprehension. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, you still don't get it, let me show you. So here they are on a mountain. And and for just a moment the veil is lifted and the glory of Jesus starts shining through. And here's what it says. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Remember, if you've been with us in this series, one of the things that we've been doing in this series every week is looking at these encounters, because all of these various encounters are different ways of of waking us up to the reality of who Jesus really is, which is one of the reasons I love this passage in particular because it's literally saying that the disciples are waking up to the glory of Jesus. In other words, you can't really see Jesus or understand Jesus or, or, um, or know Jesus without seeing his glory. That's what we need to see. Now, that sounds great. It sounds really spiritual and, and like I said, mystical, like, hey, we want to light a candle and meditate on this. But how did the disciples experience this vision of glory? Notice Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here let us make three tents one for you and one for moses and one for elijah now here's why he said this if you go back to the exodus story it's all about god's rescue of israel from the evils of slavery and bringing them into a new world a new land rescue and renewal but when god appears in his glory to the people of israel How did he do it? In a cloud. But the cloud comes down on the mountain and God speaks to the people and he tells them to build a tent. It's called the tabernacle. And the tent, or the tabernacle, was the place of God's glorious presence with his people. God's inviting people into his glorious presence. But the only reason that the tent could be the place of God's presence was because the tent was also the place of sacrifice. The reason is because whenever God's glorious presence comes into direct contact with human beings, it's, it's kind of like getting too close to the sun. It would incinerate us. You know, if, if you, the, the glory of the sun, as it were, is too much for us as human beings. If you get too close, it would incinerate you. Why? Because you don't share the nature of the sun. You are unlike the sun. In the same way, one of the ways you know you're really beginning to encounter the God of the Bible is you begin to have an experience of all the ways that you were unlike God. And the moral weight of that begins to press down upon you. It's not a cozy, tranquil experience. In many ways, it's an experience that will unmake you, literally, literally. But because we were created for the glory of God, because we were created to experience God's beauty, God's glory, and live in His presence, we have been alienated from God because of our rebellion, because of our sin, and now the glorious presence of God is actually radically threatening to us. So, for instance, Barbara Ehrenreich is an author, a political activist, and a lifelong atheist, but she tells the story about how when she was 17 years old... um, Her life was filled with all kinds of doubts and questions about God and the meaning of life and the meaning of existence. And she she says that one morning on an empty street in a little town, early in the morning, right before dawn, that she had an encounter with something. Listen to how she describes it. She says, there were no visions, no prophetic voices, just this blazing everywhere. Something poured into me and and I poured out into it. This was not the passive, beatific merger with, quote, the all, as promised by the Eastern mystics. Instead, it was a furious encounter with a living substance. Ecstasy would be the word for this, but only if you acknowledge that it does not occupy the same spectrum as happiness or euphoria, that it can resemble an outbreak of violence. Now, I don't know exactly what Barbara Ehrenreich encountered But what she's describing is exactly what happens when you encounter the glorious presence of God. It becomes radically threatening. That's why Moses, when he met God on the mountain, he said, God, show me your glory. And God said, Moses, I can't. It would kill you. No one can see my face and live. The only way that God can make his glorious presence um, and invite us into that and experience that is, is by giving us some kind of protection. So, the tent, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the atonement, all of that was a way of God inviting us into his glorious presence and allowing us a way to experience, to see his glory, to see his beauty, and live. Now that you understand that, we can put all of that together and come back to the mountain here with Peter and Jesus, and you see what's going on with Peter. He's saying, Here's God, we need protection. That's what's going on with him. But then the most terrifying thing of all happens. It says, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, here's what's happening. Here comes the glory cloud of God. And before they've had a chance to build a tent and get any protection, it doesn't just say they're near the cloud or in the vicinity of the cloud. It says they're in the cloud. And yet they survive. They should be dead And yet they're not. How? Well, notice what it says, that a voice, it's the voice of God. We'll talk about that in a little bit, too. A voice came out of the cloud, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Friends, this is the key right here. Jesus was found alone. In other words, it's the presence of Jesus. When Jesus is present, you don't need a tent anymore because Jesus is the tent. When Jesus is present, you don't need the sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that quenches the need for all the other sacrifices. In other words, how does Jesus bring this dark world and transform it into a world of light and life and peace and joy? This passage is showing us, but it's a little hard to see because we're reading it in English. Notice in the middle of this encounter, it says, Behold, two men were talking with Jesus... Moses and Elijah were two prophets from the Old Testament who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, when it talks about Jesus' departure, that's really just a way of talking about his death on the cross. But the really fascinating thing is that word departure is really the Greek word exodus, which means way out. Exodus means a way out. Ex, out. Hadas, which means way or road. Exodus means a way out. The reason... You remember the Exodus story? It's all about rescue and renewal. God rescues Israel from slavery and he brings them into a new world. Friends, the the Israel Exodus, the Exodus of Israel was a foretaste or a preview of the ultimate Exodus that God was going to accomplish through Jesus. The first Exodus... Was, the liber- was liberation from physical, economic, and social bondage. But the ultimate exodus that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection from the dead was the liberation from all evil, sin, suffering, and even death itself. The exodus, the only way Jesus could bring this dark world into a world of light and life and peace and joy was through his death and resurrection. It's the world we all long for, and that's the way Jesus brings it about. But that leads to our last question. We've seen, where is this world headed? We've asked, how does it get there? But lastly, how can we take part in it? In other words, how should we respond to all of this? Because if the destiny towards which this world is headed, it really is the glorious presence of Jesus. And if the only way that this world can get there is through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then what does that mean for our lives? Let me just pull out few implications from this passage the first is this it means we pray for glory in the gospel of luke one of the main themes is prayer so when you're reading luke you'll notice that anytime something really big happens it's almost always preceded by somebody who is praying including jesus in fact, if you read through all of the Gospels with an eye for this, you'll notice how many times it talks about Jesus going away to a solitary uh, place so that he could pray and be with God. And he doesn't just do it by himself. He often brings his disciples along with him. Um, he does that in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he died on the cross. He also does it in this passage. He brings his disciples with him to pray. So whether by yourself or with others, prayer is one of the main ways that we experience the presence of God. So you notice it says in this passage that as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. In other words, it's as Jesus was praying that the glory gets revealed. Friends, um, I don't know any other way to put this except to say that if you really want to experience the glory of God, the reality of God, become a person of deep prayer. There, There are all kinds of ways of praying, whether by yourself or with others, whether out loud or silent prayer, whether really structured prayers or more impromptu kinds of prayers. But here's the thing, we need all of those different ways of praying. Because if we only do the things that are comfortable or natural to us, we'll be malformed. It's kind of like an artist or an athlete who only practices the skills that they're good at. They'll never grow, they'll never mature. We need all the different ways of praying. So I'm an introvert. I naturally tend to, towards praying in, you know, by myself. I prefer that, which means all the more reason that I need to be praying with other people. It's one of the main reasons that we are having this prayer class over the next six weeks because we want to help you learn different ways of praying. Prayer is one of the main ways that you experience the glory and the reality of God. So first, we pray for glory. But second... We grow in community. Now, I love this because you'll notice that Jesus didn't just bring Peter alone with him onto the mountain. This was not just a a private spiritual experience for Peter by himself. Jesus also brought two other disciples, James and John. They needed to experience this in community with each other so that they could process the story together as a community and live out the implications of this in community So just as, um, and by the way, you know, it doesn't mean that they spent the rest of their lives um, kumbaya having all kinds of warm fuzzies for each other the rest of their life. They they, uh, still had all kinds of faults and failures and sins and shortcomings in their life that grated upon each other. Being in community is not easy. It's hard. But, but they stayed in community together because they had been called into community through Jesus. So just as we will only experience God's presence and glory and reality if we become persons of prayer, in the same way, we will only experience the true growth, maturity, and spiritual formation God intends for us if we're, unless we're deeply engaged in community with other people who are following Jesus. We need that. So first, we pray for glory We grow in community, but lastly, we live a cross-shaped life. Now, here's what this means. Um, Remember, we saw that when the, the, the cloud came, it says a voice came out of the cloud. It was the voice of God. Now, what did God say? It wasn't a big speech at all. It was actually rather brief and laconic. God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's all God says. Listen to Jesus. Now, what did Jesus say? Well, that's where we go back to this conversation that Jesus was having right before the transfiguration happens. Jesus says, very famous words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, we're going to do a deep dive on this beginning next week when we start studying Romans 5 through 8. But one of the main problems the disciples had with this is because they couldn't understand how Jesus was going to be a suffering and dying Messiah. They couldn't understand how Jesus was going to bring this dark world into a world of light and life and peace and joy and beauty, not by going around darkness, evil, pain, and death, but by plunging himself right into the very heart of it. They couldn't understand that. So, yes following jesus sometimes that might mean physical death but you notice that when jesus talks about this he says we're taking up our cross notice how he puts it daily that means jesus is talking about a different kind of death what he's talking about he says whoever loses their life will save it jesus is talking about dying to your false self or as we're going to see paul calls it the old self Or the old humanity, dying to that old self. And that doesn't mean that that you cease to be a self or that you annihilate yourself, your sense of self. No, rather it means that you come alive to your true self, that you become transformed into the new self, the true self that God created you to be. In other words, it means living what theologians call a cruciform life. A cruciform life means a life that's shaped or formed by the cross. Now, we can't explain all of what this means just this week, but let me say this much: that the, the darkest forces that you will ever face are not the forces of darkness in this world, as dark as this world is. The darkest forces you will ever face are in your own heart and in your own life. That means both the dark things that have happened to you that are a part of your story, and you're not responsible. For those things, but it also means the dark ways that you have responded to your story. The dark ways that your heart has been twisted and deformed and and distorted and twisted you into bitterness and resentment and selfishness and self centeredness and pride and arrogance and envy and all the other dark things that are in our lives. Friends, some of you don't believe me. Others of you are offended by that. And others of you you know, you're followers of Jesus, and maybe you do believe it, and you do accept it, and you've been following Jesus for some years now, maybe decades, and you feel like, hey, I've explored a lot of the darkness in my life. I'm, I'm good. But for all of us, myself included, we don't really want to go there, because doing that feels like death, and it is, but it's a good death. Because here's the thing. You remember this picture we looked at a couple of weeks ago? This glorious old house that has fallen into ruin. And we noticed a couple of weeks ago that the ruin of this house does not define the house, it distorts the house. And that it's only by looking at the ruin that you can see and get a glimpse of the glory for which the house was originally created. The the, the ruin points you to the glory of the house. But the ruin does not define the house. The ruin distorts the house. In the same way, sin and darkness does not define us as human beings. It distorts us as human beings. But it is only by looking at the ruin and the darkness of our own lives that we can actually get pointed to the glory and the beauty and the goodness for which we were created. And just as... um, the only way the house gets restored is by honestly facing the ruin into which it's fallen. The only way our souls get restored is by being honest and frank about the ruin and the darkness that are present in our own lives. But then allowing that ruin and darkness to point us back to the glory and the goodness and, um, and the beauty that, for which we were created by God. Jesus says we do that daily. That means we're never done plumbing the depths of darkness and ruin in our own lives but we're also never done um, glimpsing and claiming and moving towards the glory and the beauty and the goodness for which we were created and to which jesus is absolutely committed to accomplishing in our lives friends Here's what this means. The, the, the only way you are ever going to do this, the only way I'm ever going to do this, is because we already have a Savior who's already made a way out, an exodus for us, by making a way through for us. And the way through he made was through his death and resurrection from the dead. When you let Jesus into the darkness of your life, he brings his light into the darkness of your life and he transforms you more and more into somebody who can carry that light into the darkness of this world the transfiguration years later decades later peter was reflecting on that you can read about this in second peter chapter one and you see that he talks about how all of this is a light in the dark place He's remembering being on the mountain with Jesus. The more you take the transfiguration into your life, it's a light in a dark place. The more you take that into your life, the more you become a light in a dark place to the world around you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We praise you. We exalt you. We worship you, for you are light and life and glory, and beauty, and goodness, and peace, and justice itself. We worship you this morning, and we want to see and experience and be welcomed more and more into your light and your life, your glory, your beauty, and your goodness. Father, we know and we um, affirm that we were created by you to experience all of that in loving union with you, and so we pray this morning that you would help us to wake up more fully and to see the glory of Jesus and and even more to rejoice and rest in the reality that we need not fear that your glory which in our rebellion would destroy us through your grace renews us. And so we pray that you would renew us more and more in your likeness, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to live cruciform lives, cross-shaped lives, that just as Our initial um, uh, rebellion against your suffering, your dying on the cross, would be transformed into acceptance and enjoyment, that, that the same life, death, and resurrection that you experienced, Lord Jesus, would come into our lives and shape us in your image. Father, help us to do this, that we not only may experience your light in the darkness of our lives, but that you may transform us into your light in the midst of a dark world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.